Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome to the podcast. Jungle. Welcome to Passport Mommy. I'm your host, Michelle Gerson. This show is for anyone raising little humans. We feature experts with tips and advice to enrich the lives of our children. Mom and dad entrepreneurs tell us their inspiring stories. Learn about products that could make both you and your child's life easier and more fun. And of course, fellow parents discuss and laugh about what's happening in their child's world. Motherhood is a journey. Thanks for joining me on mine. Welcome to Passport Mommy. I'm Michelle Gerson. I hope you're enjoying your day. I hope you've had a good week. I have not had a chance to plan a summer vacation yet, and it's driving me crazy because it really goes against my grain, but we have so much going on. We're in the middle of a move and it's just, it's so much. And that in and of itself stresses me out that I haven't gone outside because, or I should say to travel outside my area, because I'm a huge outdoors person. I love the summertime. I love taking advantage of everything there is to do in the warmer weather. And so I'm really happy to have with me today, Sarah Gardner. She is, she is the director of marketing at Juvie. Her husband, Rob Gardner is the founder and CEO of Juvie, a global leader in premier juvenile toy and Sporting good products for babies through young children. And I am personally a huge fan of Juvie. I just was using my jogging stroller today with my son to check out a new neighborhood we were thinking of moving to. But I love what they're doing right now with their partnerships with the National Park Foundation. So I'm so thrilled to have Sarah with me today. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. So good to be here. Nice to speak with you. Thank you. So for those who may be entering the first time mom world or those who have younger children, tell us a little bit about Juvie. Well, Juvie has everything from baby bottles, strollers, high chairs, play yards, um, balance bikes, tricycles. We have a new uh, skin to skin wrap that's coming out. We've got, we've really got it almost everything except a car seat that you need. That's great. Yep. I've got your stroller. I used your bottles for both my kids. And what was the other thing you mentioned that I said, yep, I have that too. Oh, the high chair. Yep. (laughs) So big fans here. So obviously you make products that are really great for getting us outside with our children, like your jogging strollers. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now with the National Park Foundation. Yes. So our our partnership with the National Park Foundation was a a long time in the making, actually. We first um, knew that we wanted to work with them in 2016 when we took a family vacation to national parks. And we were just so moved by the experience that we knew we needed to do something. So we were trying to figure out how to connect, you know, Juvie, a baby products business to the National Park Foundation. Um, Mm -hmm. So what we ended up doing was we took our our top products and connected each product with an endangered animal that lives in a national park. I love it. And so do the proceeds from those products go to help the animals? Uh, So 5% of the retail price of everything on our website, including the National Park collection, but every purchase you make 
goes towards our commitment to the National Park Foundation, which is $200,000 by the end of 2021. And the way that it works is we are protecting and supporting the habitats that these animals live in. So the National Park Foundation is the official charity of the National Park Service. The National Park Service runs all the parks, protects all of the lands where these animals live. Got it. Okay. So how do families benefit? Let's talk about how we can benefit from taking our kids to national parks, no matter how young they are. Well, yeah, national parks have so many benefits. You know, we all think about getting outdoors and getting outside and the grandeur and the beauty of all of these parks, but there's so much more. Um, There are over 423 parks in the National Park Service system. They can be, you know, these big, beautiful parks like Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, but they're also saddle fields. There are historic homes. Um, there are riverways and walkways and all sorts of different kinds of places that you can take your family to be outside and to learn about history and heritage as well. Right. And so for somebody, so myself, I have a two and a four-year-old. Sometimes I think about that and I think, wow, it would be really nice to take a trip where we're just out in nature, especially during these times. But then I think, how will I stay with them? Will the accommodations be easy? What is what has your experience been when traveling with kids that young to national parks? So I'm a planner. So mm-hmm. especially with national parks, you know, the like I said, there's over 400 parks in the system. Some of these trips are big once in a lifetime trips. If you're going to go to one of these bigger parks and the first big, big trip that we planned um, in 2016 during the centennial, I had planned almost a year in advance uh, doing all the research, booking the hotels, booking the events that we would do while we were there. And the thing is with the national parks, what's so wonderful is they really have accommodations for everyone. So they, Mm -hmm. you can camp in the national parks or they have, you know, at all levels of accommodations, they have fancy hotels, they have campsites and everything in the middle. Plus a lot of these really large parks have wonderful gateway cities. Um, for instance, Grand Teton National Park, we were just there in June. Uh, Jackson, Wyoming is their gateway city. So they have, you know, endless hotels at all, all levels of um, mm-hmm. So that's, you know, one of the nice things about the park. So they are very accessible. Yeah, absolutely. That's nice to hear. And so you say you're a planner. I am too. Sometimes I just can't even imagine though planning so far in advance, but you have to, especially when you have kids. Do you have other travel tips just in general, whether you're taking a car trip or whatever type of trip with your young children? Well, what I, like I said, I'm a planner. I, you know, when we do these big trips, there's a, we drive. So there's a lot of driving involved. I detail out the miles. I detail out the stops. I'll do research in advance as to where we're going to eat lunch, where we're going to eat dinner, <laughs> just so I know, okay, there's, there's a cute little um, restaurant in this tiny town in middle of America. We're going to be driving by, or there's not. So we're going to McDonald's today, or we're going right. to stop at the Whole Foods or the grocery store. So I try to detail all of that out in advance. Um, and then just making sure we try not to get in a rush. You know, we, we make the plan, but then we're not afraid to deviate from the plan. So if I have a big hike on the plan and the kids are not into it, we just change. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the thing. You've got to be able to be flexible as well. 
Yes, absolutely. I think that's very important because people go in with the best of intentions and they think I want to do this. I want to do that. And they have this huge agenda. And then I think you're just setting yourself up for misery because we know with kids, you have to be flexible and you have to work around everybody's feelings that day. So let's talk a little bit about the endangered animals that we touched on before and the parks that they live in. What are some of the endangered animals living in these beautiful places? Well, a couple of the ones that we are um, working with right now, one is this Southern sea otter. And he lives in central California. So the Golden Gate Recreation Area. So Mm -hmm. even San Francisco, he basically lives in the Bay there and um, Channel Islands right off the coast of central California. We are working um, on a product with the black-footed ferret. And he's a really cool guy. He was actually once extinct. And then they found a small group of black-footed ferrets, and now there are about 300 of them living in Wind Cave National Park and Badlands National Park. Oh, wow. Um, Then the next one we're working with is the Sonoran pronghorn. And uh, there are pronghorns all over the United States, but this specific pronghorn, the Sonoran pronghorn, lives in Oregon Pipe National Monument. Mm -hmm. Um, We're working with the um, Hawaiian hoary bat. He lives in Hawaii, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, instead of roosting in caves, like a lot of bats, that this bat roosts in trees. So mm-hmm. those are the first four animals we're doing. And then we have other animals that we're going to do over the next year. Terrific. I love that. And so how can we teach our kids to make a difference when it comes to awareness and to teach them just about the environment and, and taking care of the, the environment and the animals that live in it. I think with, with kids, they're always watching us. So the, one of the best things that we can do is just to set a good example, you know, recycle, don't use plastic water bottles. If you can not, um, mm-hmm. you know, go outside always leave places better than you left than you saw them when you got there. So, you know, always take your trash when you leave a park, but if you see something on the ground, also pick it up and throw it out. Right. That's Um, really smart advice. Yeah. When you're in the national parks or, or anywhere else, really, you know, stay on the paths, give animals their space. You know, you're in their home. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's important to remember not to disturb their home. Right. Exactly. Very, very good. So we have about 45 seconds left. I want to talk to you in the next segment about the importance of just being outside, especially after a pandemic, because I know you're a huge proponent of that. I am too. And that ties into the national parks and the National Park Foundation. But tell us really quickly, where can we go to learn more about what you're doing with Juvie and the National Park Foundation? You can go directly to our website at uh, juvie.com. Perfect. And that's J-O-O-V-Y.com. We're speaking with Sarah Gardner. She is the director of marketing at Juvie and her husband, Rob Gardner, is the founder and CEO of Juvie, which is a global leader in premium juvenile toy and sporting good products for babies through young children. And they have done something incredible with the National Park Foundation. And we've been talking all about the importance of just educating our children on the environment, on animals, and how We can help the National Park Foundation, but also why we should visit and why it's so important just to get outside and explore, especially after a pandemic and the year and a half that we've been through. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Michelle.
Sure. So let's talk about the importance of getting outside because I wholeheartedly agree with the importance of that. Yes. Uh, I think like you mentioned during this last year and a half, everybody has really felt that need to get outside and, and felt the benefits of it. You know, stepping out your front door, it's almost like you just feel your shoulders relax and you can hear the birds and it just instantly makes you feel better. Yes, a hundred percent. And I know when I drop my son off at this new daycare that he's going to, and I'll say, did you go outside today? Are you taking him outside? Oh, it's humid. Oh, it's this. And I'm thinking to myself, he's not going to be at this daycare for long because (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile, my daughter's at a farm camp and she's out the entire day. So I think it is, it's so important for the little ones, for us, for our mental state, just to get outside. And so how do families benefit from spending outside time together, even if it's just going for a walk all together? No, exactly. And, and I think that's the thing that people have to keep in mind that it does not always need to be a big adventure, just stepping out your front door and going for a walk or into your backyard. Um, I remember when I was little, we used to like to go outside and we'd pick the dandelions and climb trees and you just learn so much. Children benefit from just exploring and discovering and seeing things in nature that they wouldn't see, you know, in inside. Right. Exactly. And it's seeing like those things that are natural and whether it's bugs or vegetables or fruits or whatever it is that it's such a learning experience. And I feel that no matter the age, you can learn so much from getting out of your house. So why have you taken on this mission to get people out of their homes and and out to the national parks and just outside in general? You know, we just as a family and Rob grew up outside, you know, here in California, I grew up in, on the East coast in New Hampshire, you know, hiking and spending time by the shore when I could. And we just believe it has so many benefits to, to everyone, to children, to adults. Um, I mean, with children, it, again, it, it teaches them, you know, there are a lot of health issues that it teaches them just to be a healthy person, but it also teaches them to explore and discover and take care of things. You know, children will find bugs or caterpillars and then they'll try to, you know, take care of them. And that empathy is, you know, not created sitting inside all of the time and just exploring nature really kind of helps that connection uh, for children. Yes, I agree. I agree. And so what does family gear have to do with endangered animals, because I know you are a bit, you produce family gear, you make these wonderful products. And we've talked about a little bit about the connection with the national parks, but just tell me again, how you tie it all in. Right. So we, we really wanted to bring, you know, we have this, this gear company and we were trying to make this connection. So by attaching an endangered animal to a common household item that you're using every day, we felt was a great way to do it because education and knowledge is really the first step to learning to take care of something. So if children learn um, from a young age about these animals, they'll grow up wanting to take care of the animals and the habitats where they live. That's where we kind of made the connection um, with Family Gear. You know, all of the products come with a plush animal, a book that has, you know, actual facts about the animal and their habitat. 
Mm-hmm. And um, a placemat as well that, you know, gives you fun facts and then has some educational activity. So we're really trying to share that knowledge. And that's that's how we're making the connection. So we want these kids and families to just really learn about these animals and love them and grow up to take care of them. I love it. I love what you're doing, Sarah. I think it's amazing. So we have about a minute and a half left. What else would you like to tell us as far as Juvie, how we can get involved and where we should go for more information. Right. So you can um, check out our website, juvie.com. We've got, you know, obviously we have all of our um, products there, but we also have some great resources, you know, a find your park where you can go in and you can put in your zip code or your city and find the closest national park to you. And we also have some fun coloring pages and different um, fun facts about all of these animals. Again, as much as we, you know, would love people to, purchase our products. We really believe in the educational aspect of these. And we really want people to learn and um, get this knowledge about these animals. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. You and Rob, amazing work with not just Juvie, but the National Park Foundation. And real quickly, how do you balance it all as a mom and doing all of this as well? What, what are your few quick tips? Um, well, some days we don't, I don't do a great job, but I think that that's part of the thing It's is sometimes things have to give, you know, one, ask for help. It's okay. And two, not everything's going to get done at work or at home. So I think that it is a balancing act and some days certain things are more important than others. And it's, it's learning to balance all of that. Great advice. Thank you so much, Sarah Gardner. We're going to speak with my good friend, Marshall Stevenson. Welcome back to Passport Mommy. I'm Michelle Jerson, and I'm so happy to have with me today my great friend, comic dad, phenomenal dad, Marshall Stevenson. Marshall, it's been a while. Thanks for being back on the show. Nice to be back. How you doing? Good, good. So our daughters are both at camp this summer. My daughter just started this week, and I know your daughter is enjoying her camp. What What's it been like? What's it been like for her? Well, uh, so far, so good. I have seen a lot less of her. So uh, I'm getting stuff done. It's great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm very envious. She had 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 some trouble since we last spoke uh, during her last uh, few weeks of school where she encountered, I won't use the word bully, but somebody who was saying things like, your backpack is too small. Why do you wear your hair like that? Are you serious? Yeah. And then we don't want to play with you or you take the green one. Wow. Yeah. And how, I mean, they're five. She's five. Four and a half. Four and a half. So preschool. And there was one girl. And then it turned out that another girl who had previously been nice to her sort of was brought to the dark side by this girl who was saying things like that and so we had an incident we talked to the teacher but it didn't stop right away and we had this whole discussion and then I wanted her to kind of fight her own battle or at the very least talk to the teacher herself instead of having me talk to the teacher so we went through uh, we went through a bit of a process which never got completely resolved sort of school year ended 
Wow. It's like, I, that's what I fear. I mean, I fear that it's coming. It's going to start. I'm going to relive my childhood through my kids. <laughs> and it's like, how do you, you know, so how did your daughter respond to that? What did you end up doing? Well, first of all, I didn't know where you picked on. Is this, does this bring back bad memory? <laughs> well, you know, it's just, it brings back memories of clicks and like your typical school age stuff. And a good friend of mine who has kids who are, I think, 10 and maybe seven, she says, yep, she goes, be prepared. You're going to relive your high school. And that's why, you know, thinking about going, moving to near where I grew up, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's such a good thing. Yeah, I have a particular bias about around that vicinity of where you grew up i think they're they oh my god i can't believe i'm saying this this is a i'm gonna get pelted um i think there's a higher mean girl quotient out there mm -hmm. i get that sense i went to a camp myself with some kids from out there and i think there's a, but this is nowhere near this is in the middle of new york city and you asked me how she did it yeah i i actually have the perspective that oddly enough that I'm glad it happened mm. because there are people like that. And she was upset about it, but a little bit like, why would she do that? I don't, I was nice to her. Why wasn't she nice to me? There wasn't, she wasn't really that traumatized. It did not look like a kid who's been bullied. It just looked like, yeah, I like everybody about except that, you know, that kid and that kid says stuff like, why do you wear those sunglasses? And I said, oh, well, maybe you should just, you know, not play with that kid. Mm -hmm. And she's like, all right. But then the kid kind of. She would decide to play in a certain PlayStation and then that kid would come behind her and also sign up in that PlayStation mm -hmm. and then tell her that she didn't want to play with her. So there was like the kid was seeking her out to kind of not be that nice. Wow. And then maybe not. But then we found out that the same was happening with every kid like this kid wasn't nice to any of the kids okay right but it doesn't make it easier right it's still like you're always going to have that mean person and you're still always going to have that person that's picking on whether it's just your daughter or everybody and it just it's so hard it's so hard especially if you have kids like my daughter who tends to be on the sensitive side so it really comes down to us and how are we going to handle this with our kids and so that it's presented to them in a way that does not traumatize them and that they can learn the skills to get past this. Yeah. And I don't think it was traumatizing. I don't think there was, that's why I said at the beginning, I didn't want to use the word bully because the kid was, I think part of the problem is that my kid said, well, she's not being nice. So now I, I guess I have to, you know, be extra nice to her and give her another chance. And yeah. she wasn't totally buying the, you know, play with someone else. Why would you want to play with that kid? I mean, she got it, but she was just like, I think I'm going to give her another chance and I'm going to come and I'm going to tell her that it's okay. And it's better to be nice. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that, and then she said, that's my plan. I'm going to tell her it's better to be nice. Okay. And then it was like, she did it again. And then we talked to the teacher 
And we tried to, and then when I talked to the teacher, I said, can you tell the teacher? And she kind of wanted me to tell the teacher, but then I wouldn't tell the teacher twice. Right. I brought her over and said, my daughter has something to tell you. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't tell her. Tw- I wouldn't. And then the next time, cause it happened again, I wrote her and said, my daughter will be talking to you about this, but it continued. And then they moved the desk. And then, then there was another kid who kind of like was brought into that mean girl. But then as soon as that kid was talked to, she was nice again. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's so good though. I like your approach about you saying that you're not going to go to the teacher again, because I think a lot of times like my daughter, what I'm working with her on is how to be more uh, assertive and aggressive in speaking about her feelings and what she needs and what she wants. Because a lot of times she'll say, mommy, you tell them, you tell them, you tell them. And so I'm really trying to work with her on that. Yeah. So I don't think she was that traumatized. I think that there was some learning sort of like how to deal with it. And so, and then the year ended and we think that it's kind of good that it happened because it will happen again. There was some conflict though. The teacher came from the perspective that everybody's going to be friends and we're going to fix this. And everybody is friends with everybody in this class. And that's the way it is. Everybody is friends. This is a community and everybody's friends with everybody. And then my wife and I were like, she said that to you. Hey, you don't have to be friends with her. Right, right. <laughs> good, so good. That's definitely a different message. I'm not sure that either of them are bad, you know, way of looking at it. But <laughs> I don't know. Do, would you, don't you think it's, don't you think, I mean, don't you understand what we're, I mean, I guess I understand the teacher wants everybody to be friends, but as a parent, I don't regret saying to her, you don't have to be friends with that person. No, I don't think so. I don't think, you know, I think that's good that you're teaching her to have her own opinions and that, you know what, everyone doesn't have to be friends. And I think that's more real life. And I think at some point people, you know, the kids need to learn that. And then, so we started fooling around with it and we were like, so what did, uh, you know, Lauren fake name say to you? Right. And he was like, well, this was, and I was like, well, did you kick her in the mouth? Oh, no. And she was like, daddy, you're joking. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. You could have like, just like punched her in the face or something like that. Did you She's really like, say that? No. <gasps> well, I knew I said it knowing that she would right. get I wasn't serious. If right. I were worried at all that she thought I was serious or she was a kid who would otherwise, I mean, she's the most, you know, docile child. She would never, she would never in a million years do either of those things. It was clear I was being funny. Is that, right. you think that's bad? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a comic. I, I say things I know, like that. But you know, it's funny though, that you say, like, I can't even imagine having those conversations with my daughter or son, like saying that to them. Like, I wonder how they would respond, but I'm like, maybe, maybe I do need that. Maybe I do need to be more aggressive and like get her to be more aggressive. But you know what? She's just back at camp. This, she's on her third day at camp or fourth day. We're on Thursday. Um, from she hadn't been in school or anything for 15 months. So I think she's doing okay. Uh, yeah. 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 That's like, you have to learn how to be social. And, you know, 
adults are having trouble. They're forgetting manners. There's all Mm -hmm. these reports about all the people and their slobby behavior out in public again. And they're more (laughs) impatient and all these. Everybody has to remember, especially everybody has to remember how to be social, especially the people who were never taught in the first place. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's just it's so funny. Um, Yeah, we can learn a lot from our kids and through our kids. But I think the biggest challenge, too, is not taking, you know, not going back and thinking about what we went through when we were kids, you know? Well, well, right. But I mean, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't remember. I didn't experience a lot of that. By the way, we did tell her, I I was going to give you the wrong idea with the kick in the mouth. And then you said, well, I, I, maybe I should recommend being more aggressive. We obviously were kidding when we were telling her to kick her in the mouth. And we knew one point she got, she was upset. She's like, stop daddy, stop it. That's not right. You don't do that. So okay. obviously there's no danger in this and, right. and joking like this. Right. But we did say to her, if somebody says, I don't want to play with you, you say, well, I don't want to play with you. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, we just said, if, if you don't want to play with me, then I don't want to play with you. Right. Like, it's good or to teach her to stand up for says, Yeah. Somebody said to her once, you don't get to play with the blue blocks. And we said, well, then say, well, I didn't want to anyway. Right, right. <laughs> it's just good. like, or, or you're not the boss of me, or, you know, talk back to this person. I mean, they're, you know, don't stand your ground. Don't let right. anyone tell you. And if they say you're not allowed somewhere, just be like, well, I didn't want to go there anyway. Don't let them have that power over you because the bully, want, the bully does it to get the rise out of you. I mean, the bully, the bully doesn't, the bully is never going to bully confident kids. Right. Right. They bully the kids who are not confident. So as long as you stand your ground and you're like, well, I don't, whatever. It was like, oh, you have a, you know, so we didn't worry at all because if she's making fun of her backpack and she comes home and she says, I don't want to wear this backpack and she's crying, that's fine. But she's like, why does this kid care about my backpack? You know, Mm -hmm. she's, she's, she's telling us the story like that. She's like, I like my backpack. Right. Good. Well, like, tell her you like her backpack. Tell her her backpack is too big. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's excellent. And I think it's excellent that you're even at that point developmentally where she's getting these experiences and so that she can learn this and build her confidence and know how to deal in these situations. I think that's tremendous. I think you're doing a great adversity. Job. Adversity. Yeah. They're going to have to deal with this. It's not a bad thing, in my opinion. If a kid falls down, gets hurt, has a kid pick on them, have some other uncomfortable situation. Clearly you want to minimize any serious illness, damage, hurt. I mean, obvious, you don't want to be reckless, but yeah, these kinds of things. I mean, there was just so much written and it speaks to me about snowplow parenting. And that's that a parent will just remove all the obstacles so that the kid has an easy life. And what they're finding is that that kid has a harder time functioning as an adult than if they really had to like face some adversity. Right. You know, right. have to be, you know, have to fight a little bit for what they wanted, have to deal with the people who are unfair, a little bit not nice to her within reason. So I don't, I kind of like the way it play out. I think Oddly enough, I think the fact that we had an exposure to this, it, I don't think it was a real bully situation. I think a bully goes harder than that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the what you did was great. I think the way, you know, what she's handling is great. 
And uh, I think you're an awesome dad. And that's why I love talking with you because I always love hearing. Why I love coming on because you say things like that. (laughs) Well, coming up in the next segment, I know we wanted, we were talking before a little bit about school ratings. And that's a big thing, you know, because I'm planning a move and I'm always looking at school ratings and people are telling me, stop with the ratings. They don't mean anything. So I'm curious to get your perspective on that. We're speaking with Marshall Stevenson. He is comic dad and he owns the New York Beer and Brewery Tour. So if you are in New York locally or visiting, you have to check that out as well. And don't forget to follow us on social at Passport Mommy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can always email me, Michelle at Passport Mommy. We're going to talk to Marshall Stevenson, owner of the New York Beer and Brewery Tour, but also just a fabulous dad and comic and Marshall, we were talking before the break just about school ratings a little bit. We said we we're going to talk about that because, you know, I like where I live now, but the school ratings are OK, not great, but they're OK. And, you know, places where I'm thinking about moving, they're also, you know, either average or it's like, you know, people say they move for the school district and they look on the ratings. How do you feel about the ratings? Because I feel like it, it could go either way. Uh, no, I don't. I, well, I agree with you to a point, but I think that there might, it might be like a margin of error kind of thing. Like clearly the school that's rated one in the state is going to be better than the school that's rated the lowest mm-hmm. and, you know, and continue. I mean, the, you know, the, the 1000 school is probably going to be better than the 9,000 school, but a lot of it is self-fulfilling because a lot of the best schools are the ones that, uh, attract the parents who are the most interested and have the most resources to get into that school. So, you know, you have a school on Long Island and it's got very high property taxes and the kids are all under a lot of pressure to go to Harvard and Princeton, a lot of pressure mm-hmm. that a lot of them are going to end up going to Har- a lot of them are going to end up going to Harvard and Princeton just because that's what the parents are pushing for from day one. Right. Rather, rather than, rather than, the teachers there are particularly dynamic relative to another district. I mean, the other thing is with elementary school, you know, you have one major teacher. It's a, it's, you know, you could either get a good teacher or get a bad teacher at virtually any school. Right. Exactly. And that's true. And, you know, even where I am now, it's like, you know, they say the ratings aren't phenomenal with the schools, but at the same time, you talk to the parents and they always say it's what you put into it. It's what you make of it. It's the type of parent that you are at home with your child. So, you know, I guess that plays a part also and similar to what you were just saying. I have some personal experience with my own schooling that I think like shades my opinion on this a little. One, I was pushed into a very competitive private high school. And then I ended up getting into the honors math program and I struggled and it was miserable. And I got demoted to the regular math program and I thrived. Mm hmm. So maybe I belonged in that high school, but I didn't belong in the top 10% of that high school. And so you don't want to, you want to recognize that being struggling in a school is actually hard. So you want to make sure to actually be honest about where your kid is academically and make sure that at least the kid has the potential if he works hard, works hard to be at the top of the class. Because if the kid's going to work hard and still be at the bottom of the class, then that may not be a good place for him. Right, exactly. And the the trouble or not the trouble, but the challenge is when you have some, you know, a child who's say four, like our child, our children, we don't know what kind of student they'll be. We don't know where they'll be, you know, and what their needs will be. 
Right. So you have to, I mean, you have to just like take some comfort in the fact that if you are, if you know, that things will work out well, if you uh, try, Right. <laughs> I mean, right. if you're, you know, you parent, you know, you're conscientious, you care about education, you make some educated guesses and you don't just not care about anything, then you'll probably be fine. Well, also, and there's something to be said. And again, that brings me back to like my experience. I had another experience with school. It's like high pressure environments might not be good for your development. Like we were talking about bullying in another segment. If you're in a really good school, but you're constantly bullied, you're going to come out worse as a person than if you're not in as good a school, but you're never bullied and you're flourishing and you feel because if you're not feeling good about yourself as a, as a person, those ages, then the academics are uh, probably second, like right. probably you have to be feeling good about yourself to flourish in anything. You know, like, otherwise you're going to be, I mean, maybe not. I mean, everybody knows the kid who's the dork who's bullied, but still gets all A's. So, I mean, like, as I'm saying that, I'm like, ah, that's not true. No, but, but I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Anyway, the other example I was going to give you is like when I went to college, my dad went to good school and I uh, had some alumni connections and good ones. And um, my grades weren't good enough. So I went to a different school, which is where I met my wife and all my friends and my career started there. And thank God I didn't get into the better school because right. I just know that that right. other school, the school I ended up going was better. So like, careful what you wish for. That's right. We have to keep that in mind. It really is just all that you make of it, because look at you, look at your beautiful family that you now have because you went to the school that you went to instead of the one that you thought you would go to. Marshall Stevenson, as always, thank you so much for joining me today. I always love speaking with you. And don't forget, you should check out the New York Beer and Brewery Tour. If you are in the New York area or you're visiting or you have family and friends who are visiting, definitely a really fun experience. I'm Michelle Gerson. Thank you so so much for joining me today. I'll talk to you next week. Kids need wholesome snacks to fuel their active bodies and imaginations, like delicious soft-baked Cliff Kids Z-Bar. With energizing whole grains from organic oats and in flavors kids love, it's the perfect portable snack for blasting off to space on the swings at recess or exploring the uncharted schoolyard with fellow adventurers. Grab a box of Cliff Kids Z-Bar snacks today because imagination needs fuel. Learn more at cliffkid.com. Kids need wholesome snacks to fuel their active bodies and imaginations, like delicious soft-baked Cliff Kids Z-Bar. With energizing whole grains from organic oats and in flavors kids love, it's the perfect portable snack for blasting off to space on the swings at recess or exploring the uncharted schoolyard with fellow adventurers. Grab a box of Clip Kid Z-Bar snacks today because imagination needs fuel. Learn more at ClipKid.com. What do you know about Dr. Dunch? Based on the unbelievable true story. I can't make sense of this. Dr. Death. Dunch has two deaths that we know of. Starring Joshua Jackson with Christian Slater and Alec Baldwin. I am going to fix you. All episodes streaming now, only on Peacock. episode please leave us a review on itunes
I'd like to start with a quote, but it's very embarrassing because I don't know where it comes from. But it's very well put, and it goes like this. Copyright is designed not only to provide fairness for authors, but also to enhance the quality of life within a society by promoting the progress of science, art, and culture. In other words, the concept of making it economically feasible for creators to create is now globally recognized as a social imperative. I have very few memories of writing lyrics to songs, but there is a particular one from long ago that I do remember. I was lying on my stomach on a bed in a small guest room with a writing pad in front of me. In the master bedroom next door, my then wife, Agneta, was sleeping undisturbed. The music was playing in my head, so no need for speakers, not even headphones. A melody that still lacks words is virgin territory upon which a lyricist must tread lightly. Some of the time, the final words on the page are the result of hard work, deep thought, and the intuition that a songwriter must learn to trust. But sometimes extraordinary things happen. Closed curtains are suddenly drawn and the melody speaks to you. It starts to conjure up images and even sequences of events. All you have to do is write it down, write down what you witnessed. A song can come to its creator in bits and pieces, but when it once in a while appears out of thin air in its entirety, it seems to suggest it had already lingered there for God knows how long, perhaps impatiently waiting to be plucked down by someone with a keen and sensitive ear, as if it needed the right vessel to flow through from the realm of ideas all the way down to earth. I was deliriously happy when I had finished. At that moment, I was grateful for music itself, for the sheer existence of this elusive, undefinable phenomenon that seems to ignore our brains and go straight to our hearts. I wanted to sing it out loud but it was two o'clock in the morning, and even in my euphoria, I had the good sense not to wake the woman who was to sing my words the next day. If Benny Anderson and I had written that song today, you might not have gotten to hear it. It could have been just another lost stream, about 80,000 new songs uploaded to streaming services every single day. The competition today is fierce, much fiercer than it was back in 1977. And even if our song had been clicked very often by Spotify subscribers, chances are slim that the royalties would have paid anyone's rent. So what I want to talk to you about today is how I see the changes in the song economy using my perspective of what it was like to be a songwriter when the music industry 
was simpler and perhaps more predictable. These days, everything is tracked by our data. And data from streaming tells us that listeners much more often click their favorite song than their favorite artist on a streaming service. Sometimes they're not even sure who it is they're listening to, if it's a playlist, for example. So if we're paying more attention to the song, though, what about the songwriter? Songwriters have been forced into the backseat, and I would even say bungle into the trunk. My concern is that songwriters are at risk of becoming invisible victims of the change that is taking place. The music business is now a song economy. Yet the creators of the songs that fuel it get the smallest slice of the pie. How did that happen? I am not for one moment about to suggest that we should turn back the clock, which you may have suspected from an old pop star. But what's happened in the last decade has the potential to be incredibly positive for songwriters. No, instead, I'm going to describe the unintended consequences of the streaming revolution, how they are reshaping the lives of songwriters, and then I will present some proposals for how the impact of these unintended consequences can be addressed. It has never been a better time to be writing and making music. Anyone today has the potential to find a global audience, and if they so choose, they can even try to do that on their own, without a record label or music publisher. A whole music software industry is emerging, serving the needs of a new generation of artists and songwriters. Streaming has enabled this new music paradigm. Once the pandemic stopped live music in 2020, many artists realized that they couldn't pay their bills on streaming alone. Some have moved back in with their parents and others are driving Ubers to make ends meet. Previously, streaming had more or less been promotion for their tours and live appearances by far providing most of their revenue. It's funny, but it was exactly the opposite for ABBA in the 70s. We hardly toured at all. And when we did, we lost money. But, I mean, the touring was supposed to be promotion for the albums, so that it didn't matter. And I can't recall that we ever complained about the size of our royalties, which the artists during the pandemic have done bitterly when streaming royalties suddenly were the only source of income. If this is the impact on artists, I thought, welcome to the world of songwriters. Most professional songwriters don't tour. They don't sell T-shirts or other merchandise. They rely on the song itself. But even that seems to be changing. Because the song has evolved in response to streaming. And it's increasingly common for record labels to get large teams of songwriters to work together, creating almost genetically modified hits. Songs are written and structured in ways that are optimized for the algorithms that streaming services use to decide what music 
you and I listen to. Some research has been done to suggest that these days a Billboard Top 10 hit has on average five songwriters. Not one or two, but five, and sometimes even ten. And on top of this, they're having to write more songs and more quickly, simply to keep up with the insatiable demand for new music that streaming creates. After ABBA had won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1974 with Waterloo, royalties suddenly came pouring in, and Benny and I could afford to write songs full-time, nine to five. That made such a huge difference. We could afford to throw away 95% of what we wrote and just keep the very, very best. We, we learned how to recognize garbage. And that's essential if you want to get good at your craft. Royalties simply gave us time and creative freedom. Needless to say, you will have neither if you're in a hurry and someone is breathing down your neck all the time. The industrial approach to songwriting is making it harder for many songwriters to build sustainable careers. Those that are successful are very successful, but those in the layers below who used to be able to make a living from songwritings are really suffering. They are becoming parts of a system that they serve more than it serves them. And here are three key pain points. Firstly, streaming services typically pay out about four times more for the recording than they do the composition, which means Streaming income is even smaller for songwriters than it is for artists. It's a legacy from the past when recordings and the packaging of physical products were very expensive. So a larger share for the recording was justified. But that has changed. But the change has not yet been reflected in the division of royalties. Secondly... Even the way that streaming services pay royalties is problematic. A listener's monthly 9.99 subscription goes into a central pot, which then gets divided by the total number of streams that month. That decides the value of one stream or, or listen. This means that you, if you have streamed Arna Jansen's jazz trio. If you have done that 50 times in the past month and the neighbor's teenage daughter has streamed Justin Bieber 5,000 times, only a small fraction of your 99 will go to Arna Jansen. Nothing wrong with Justin Bieber, but how does that reward your favorite artist? And thirdly, bad metadata is a big problem. Metadata being the relevant information about a song and its recording. Very often recordings are injected into a streaming service without accurate data. The name of the writer is missing, for instance. That means that the streaming service doesn't know where to send the royalties and the money is put in a so-called black box. Just sits there. 
Recently, 20 streaming services distributed $424 million to a U.S. nonprofit organization, which is supposed to try and find the rightful recipients of all that money. It will take years if, if they ever find them. The combination of all these issues and others are creating a perfect storm for songwriters. Over the last decade, I've watched this situation get progressively worse. And during the past five years, I've been engaged in projects that aim to do something about it. So how can I help? Well, first of all, I have you all here today listening to me. And that's, of course, what I want to do, to raise awareness. But I want to do more than just raise awareness of the issues. I also want to help the industry identify solutions. And here are a few suggestions out of many. One, fan-centric royalties. In order to ensure that all songwriters get paid fairly, I suggest that streaming services allocate their royalty payments based on the behavior of individual listeners. The individual description should be divided by the number of songs the individual listen, listener has played during a month. That gives each song a value. If the subscription is $9.99 and the listener has played 10 Arnold Jansen again songs that month, each song has the value of 0.99, almost a dollar. And that's the amount that will be paid to Arne Jansen. Under the current system, you can be sure that Arne would get the value of 0.00 something dollars. So this fan-centric approach to royalties will bring much-needed fairness and can build on the important starts made by Deezer and SoundCloud. But perhaps the simplest and most effective way to improve streaming royalties would be for streaming services to increase how much they charge. Streaming pricing has been stuck at ridiculous $9.99 for more than a decade. Meanwhile, Netflix seems to increase its pricing every week. Research shows that subscribers will pay more. $9.99 could quite easily become $11.99, perhaps even $12.99. And thirdly, the tedious but absolutely necessary registration. Wherever the 80,000 new songs per day make their entry into the music industry, there should be user-friendly registration portals to make sure that relevant information about the work is captured early. This would diminish the problem with black boxes and conflicts. In my view, it is an obligation for collecting societies who collect creators' royalties at source to modernize and to adapt their technology to the digital age. I know it's easy for me to stand here and in front of you and reel off a list of suggestions for the industry much easier than making these changes happen. But change does need to happen, and soon. Crucially, 
this change needs to be brought about by the music industry as a whole, each part working together. The song and the songwriter fuel everything, from the recording through to live performances. Even a T-shirt would not sell if the band hadn't good songs. I have created memories with some of those songs, from the Everly Brothers, and then the Beatles, Elton John, and many more. Songs that sometimes would surprise me with a stab of envy, quickly washed away by their sheer beauty and the inspiration that they gave me. I know what they mean and what they meant to me. I've often wondered what would we be without music? Less human, I'm, I'm convinced of that. If we couldn't hear music, then what else would we be deaf to? But we never seem to think about that, even though music is all around us, all of the time. This is the moment for the entire music industry to invest in supporting what is without a doubt its most valuable asset. Far too many songwriters out there are suffering in this creaking system. Solutions like those that I have outlined could help rebalance the song economy so that more songwriters and their listeners will be able to lean back and say in all honesty exactly what I said in the song that I was talking about in the beginning. Thank you for the music. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Tonight from the Tokyo Olympics, after the first full day of competition, the stands are empty, but the competition is full throttle. The U.S. shut out of medals on day one, but the women's soccer team comes roaring back with a commanding win. Now all eyes turn to the pool and Katie Ledecky. American swimmers already off to a strong start. Athletes also competing against COVID, a beach volleyball match canceled after a player tests positive. Winners putting medals on themselves for the first time. Back in the U.S., will you need a third shot? The new report that the Biden administration is considering a booster shot for at-risk Americans as more cities implement mask mandates. What is behind the rise in breakthrough cases? 20% of L.A.'s COVID cases now among the vaccinated. What you need to know. The Western megafire exploding in size. Firefighters forced to drive through flames, smoke making it all the way to the East Coast. Fast-moving floods in Arizona. Stranded drivers rescued by air. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Reporting tonight from Tokyo. Hello from Tokyo, where at long last, Olympic competition is in full swing. The first medals being awarded. Team USA anxious to get on the medal count board. All the athletes quickly adjusting to competing in front of empty seats and without the reassuring cheers from family. Though in some instances, USA athletes taking up the cheering role for fellow Americans. 
As expected, COVID still rewriting the competition schedule here as another positive test in the athlete ranks forces an event cancellation. The Olympics primetime host, Mike Tirico. Mike, how are the athletes handling this new normal? I think they're getting used to it, Lester, because they got used to it in training and when the Olympics were delayed for a year. I think we're seeing also a lot of the Olympians be very careful in their interactions in the Olympic Village compared to maybe other Olympics. You guys have a big primetime lineup. What are we looking at tonight? We're going to see swimming. I was over at the swimming competition earlier a lot of atmosphere in there with teammates creating the atmosphere so a lot of the other usa swimmers will be rooting the u.s on in the pool probably early chances for a medal and skateboarding makes its olympic debut be fun to see a new generation come to the olympic stage you got a busy night thanks for stopping by Mike. my pleasure lester and our primetime coverage of the tokyo olympics begins at 8 p.m eastern right here on nbc Back in the U.S., there is increasing concern over how to end the surge in COVID cases, fueling new conversations inside the White House about whether some will need a vaccine booster shot. Here's Kathy Park. Tonight, a sharp shift on booster shots from the White House. The New York Times reporting senior health officials are considering an extra dose for at-risk Americans, plus those 65 and older. As long as the world is not fully vaccinated, this virus will continue to replicate and mutate, and it increases the chances that we will need a regular vaccine series. This week, independent advisors to the CDC urged federal regulators to move quickly on a decision for a booster, saying people with weakened immune systems have a higher chance of breakthrough infections. While the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines await full FDA approval, the CDC may be working around that. The chief medical officer on the COVID-19 vaccine task force saying they're looking at ways to provide early access to a booster shot. The administration previously saying there was enough evidence for boosters. Nationwide, the numbers keep climbing. The seven-day average for new infections is up more than 50 percent from last week. In hard-hit Missouri, cases shot up 70 percent in just two weeks. Researchers say the Delta variant is fueling the surge. The UK variant was the most contagious virus we had ever seen. It took over the entire state in three months. The Delta variant did that in three weeks. Some hospitals in the state are treating unvaccinated COVID patients for a second time. Patients who had COVID last year getting reinfected this year, and some of them are getting admitted in the hospital. To slow the spread, St. Louis will reimpose an indoor mask mandate starting Monday. The NFL also doubling down, with fallout from the announcement that teams could face forfeits for COVID outbreaks among unvaccinated players. A coach for the Minnesota Vikings and the New England Patriots reportedly out for reasons related to the new guidelines. And with training camp about to get underway, the NFL's medical director says that 80% of the players have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Lester? Kathy Park, thank you. There are a growing number of so-called breakthrough cases. These are cases where people who are fully vaccinated are now testing positive, some getting sick. Here's Von Hilliard with why it's happening and what you should know. The headlines, unexpected. Seven vaccinated Sanford students, positive for covid Six vaccinated Texas Democrats traveling together, positive, and hundreds of Cape Cod residents and vacationers vaccinated but positive. These are uh, headlines that make us stop and think, where is this going? Public health officials agree. If you're fully vaccinated, you almost certainly won't be hospitalized or die from COVID. The numbers of people who get infected 
with serious illness or who are dying from uh, COVID-19 after being vaccinated is extremely low, really low. Look at these numbers in L.A. County alone. 20 percent of confirmed cases were breakthrough cases, but less than one hundredth of a percent of those vaccinated have been hospitalized. But why are we seeing so many cases now? Delta has turned our streets into a NASCAR track to levels a thousand times what the early virus would have gotten to in, in people's airways and their blood. And just how sick do those who are vaccinated get? My legs were still feeling a little bit weak and I was dizzy and just totally fatigued at this point. As Hannah well. Fullerton is fully vaccinated. She was sick for more than a week. How many vaccinated people are getting sick? It'd be really hard to know. We're not really doing enough testing to fully appreciate how many people who have been vaccinated have asymptomatic uh, infection. The CDC has not changed its guidance for those vaccinated, but experts are making their own risk assessments. Even if you're vaccinated, I would really advise that you continue wearing a mask indoors. If one were to get infected, um, having been vaccinated, one is very likely to have mild disease, more like uh, a standard flu or a bad cold. So um, I'm not living in fear of the Delta variant. Evolving advice as the virus evolves. Vaughn Hilliard, NBC News. New COVID restrictions across parts of Europe and in Australia ignited mass protests today. In France, crowds clashed with police, angry over the government's upcoming mandate requiring vaccinations or a negative COVID test to access most public venues. And in Australia, thousands marched for freedom from the country's strict lockdown rules amid a resurgence of the virus there. A dangerous megafire in California is getting bigger. It's now one of dozens of wildfires destroying land and upending lives in the region. Its impact even being felt thousands of miles away. Guad Venegas reports. Firefighters escaping deadly flames from the Tamarack Fire near South Lake Tahoe, California, just in time. A giant fire whirl caught on camera. Just one of the 86 wildfires across the West, destroying homes, damaging critical infrastructure, and forcing thousands to evacuate. Governor Gavin Newsom declaring a state of emergency in four counties with flames crossing into Nevada and the Dixie Fire near Paradise, California, exploding into a mega fire, consuming more than 100,000 acres. Scary. I've never been through anything like this. In neighboring Oregon, things are worse. The bootleg fire consuming over 400,000 acres. There's still several thousand people that are threatened by the fire. And it's, this is all drier than usual. Sure, yeah. I mean, everything's drier than usual. We're seeing on the Dixie fire, uh, it's primarily a fuel-driven fire. The smoke smothering the entire country. NASA releasing this image Friday, fumes again reaching the East Coast. Thousands of firefighters working around the clock, saving lives remains the priority. We grabbed as much as we could and got out. Didn't have much time, but we got out alive, so that's what matters. Out of control wildfires now the norm as global warming continues to pose a threat. Guad Venegas, NBC News. Staying in the West and the fierce summer monsoons dumping heavy rain on parts of Arizona, creating dangerous conditions. Here you see a chopper crew rescuing stranded drivers outside Phoenix after they got stuck driving through high water. 
And there is historic and deadly flooding in India. A desperate search for survivors is underway in the western part of the country following storms that triggered massive mudslides. The floods washed out homes and hillsides, killing at least 130 people. 90,000 others were evacuated. That's nightly news for this Saturday. We'll see you back here tomorrow night. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night, everyone. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. It makes a difference when a community gets thousands of new jobs. It makes a bigger difference when all of those jobs pay more than double the federal minimum wage. All Amazon employees make at least $15 an hour. Employees aren't the only ones who experience the impact of our starting wage. Neighbors like Sylvia and Francois of Sylvia's Cafe in Opelaka, Florida, feel the impact of that extra spending money. See their story at aboutamazon.com forward slash 15. When the craving hits, Wingstop delivers. Mix things up with our boneless wings in any of our 11 mouth-watering flavors, like zesty lemon pepper or sweet and spicy Korean Q. Get it delivered at Wingstop.com. Wingstop, where flavor gets its wings. This is me, your host. Welcome back. Yeah, let's right concerns or theological insights, let us know. I'm more than happy to get those uh, get that feedback from you and adjust accordingly. Well folks, welcome again to our amazing podcast. We're we're doing really well. We're gaining a lot more viewers. Uh, ah, sorry. This isn't television. A lot more listeners. We got a lot more listeners. Got a lot of bringing a lot of energy today. And I've been forgetting the last couple of podcasts, but I need to plug it in. We've got Fright Electric Light Bulbs, 30 bucks at Lowe's. You, you can, uh, it hooks up to your phone. I've got, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six of them in my own house, two on my front porch, four in my studio here. Right now, I just have it on uh, a low uh, fading color. So it, it, it adds to sort of a sort of a 1970s disco theme, but it doesn't flash as much. It's just very smooth. It's like a lava lamp in here. I'm, my studio is a lava lamp, if you think about it. It's, it, uh, it's nice and melatonin. Uh, so go ahead, go to Lowe's, get them 30 bucks, fright electric light bulbs, uh, and it hooks directly up to your phone. Well, folks, we got a lot to get to. Let's just start with something that's developed over the weekend in the sports realm the nfl is going to officially according to what i've read into okay they're going to uh fine unvaccinated players for covid protocol violations uh the fine is 14,650 bucks is what the fine will come to um, and they also announced uh, that if a COVID outbreak among unvaccinated 
players causes the game to be canceled, players from neither team would be paid. And moreover, the team that had the outbreak would actually forfeit the game and be liable for the financial penalties. Uh, according to NFL protocols, teams with 85% of their rosters vaccinated with the COVID vaccine will have far fewer restrictions than teams with uh, that fall way below that mark. Now, on Friday, if you've been keeping up with the story, because uh, today's Sunday night uh, from when we're recording here, Friday, uh, an NFL coach, uh, Rick Dennison, Rick Dennison, he parted ways with the Vikings after refusing to receive the vaccine. In addition, you had folks like, uh, what's his name? I have to go back. Oh, yes, DeAndre Hopkins. He's been traded or signed with the Cardinals. He was originally a Texan. Now he's a Cardinal. So DeAndre Hopkins, a star, like one of the major stars in the NFL, like top-tier paid folks, top-tier wide receivers. Fantasy picks, all that stuff. Let me tell you. Uh, to DeAndre Hopkins, uh, tweeted that he has decided and, and threatened the league that the league's punishment for teams if players choose to not receive the coronavirus vaccine that prompted him to ponder his future in the NFL and possibly an early retirement. Uh, and he's not the only player to tweet this. So clearly, even amongst the NFL stars, there is debate. What is the problem with freedom? Even Matt Damon from Hollywood has come out and said that he's not worried about it. Because if you're vaccinated, what's there to worry about? If you're unvaccinated, that's your problem. It's your problem. And see, with this whole Delta variant, it's just, you know, it's ultimately becoming just another strain of the flu, the only thing that's hyped this up is media. That's the only thing that's hyped this up. And I'm going to make the connection to the National Football League here in a second. But it's the same reason people do not understand why Donald Trump was so successful. Because he didn't prompt himself up. Or the media didn't prompt him up. He prompted himself up. You look at someone like a Bill Cosby. The media prompt brings you up, they'll tear you down. If the media brings you up, they will. They can tear you down too because in their minds, it's not the person they're attached to. They're attached to the media outlet that's giving them the information. They're attached to all the social uh, implications that people and the buzz. That's what brings up the entire uh, coronavirus situation uh, when, when they perceive somebody to be good. Look at Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci was perceived to be good. At first, right? 67% approval rating. Everyone liked him because the media was pumping him up. Donald Trump was talking about him decently. And next thing you know, Donald Trump stops, starts talking bad about him. He takes a little hit in the approval ratings because people follow Trump more than the media. But the moment the media turned on him, on a Dr. Fauci, St. Dr. Fauci of the Perpetual Lie, earlier this year, Dr. Fauci's approval rating is near the 30s. So it's because... But how come when they attack someone like a Donald Trump, somebody like a Rush Limbaugh, somebody uh, – there are many other examples out there I can't think of right now. Like a Mike Sherman. When, it was another good example. When they build themselves up, or like a Vince Lombardi if we're going to go to the NFL, somebody like them, it's, or John Madden. He's another good one. When the, because they weren't built up by the media. 
people were attached directly to them. And so the same thing with the coronavirus. The coronavirus is not going to go away in in people's heads until the media lets it go. And ultimately, and, and then really the media is not going to let it go until the Democrats let it go. And it's going to be a two tango thing because the media is the Democrat party. And you look at, and, and it's really this, this whole concept of fear equals control and control equals power. And the Democrats and the media cannot give up power. So they have to prompt up this new Delta variant. Uh, they want to be able to, it, they want to make it a lifestyle choice at this point. If you're scared of it and you stay home and you don't do anything for 18 months and you sit on your mother's basement uh, unemployed, which, by the way, a new, a new poll finds that 1.8 million Americans have turned down a job, have turned down a job in the last six months in order to stay unemployed. 1.8 million Americans, which we'll get to that later. But if you're, if you're going to sit in your mother's basement, you, you, that's a lifestyle choice. That is something you are deciding to do because it's all pumped in your head. The media is pumped in your head. If Because we've had these flu-like things before. Because ultimately, what shut it down? Donald Trump made a decision to shut it down, but Donald Trump tried to reopen two weeks after. It was a hard, we want to reopen. Mike Pence, it was a hard, we want to reopen. They went along with Trump the first two days, if you remember. They were all about, oh, this is great. He's shutting it down. It was like one of the few times the media gets praised. And I was skeptical. If media is going to praise the Donald, mainstream liberal media, there's something else behind it. Then two weeks later, he tries to open it, sticking to his two-week plan. And the media, when it, they just attacked him. They said it was too early. Oh, my God. What's going on? It was, and, and that's what caused the divide right there. The moment Donald Trump said he wanted to open it and the media wouldn't let it go. And there's when the divide really began. And between, this, really started with anti-mask, pro-mask. I mean, there's all sorts of different categories people are lumped into. You know, like, I'm pro-mask, but anti-vaccine, or I'm anti-mask, or pro-vaccine, or I'm two of both, or whatever. So many different groups, but the divide really started there. First, it was amongst the masks, and the politics just had to keep going from there. But people who believed more and put more faith into media outlets like a Yahoo News, a Fox News, a CNN, they were going to maintain the fact that this is quote unquote serious, that they have to stay home, that they have to take this. And 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 so now we're at this point. And that was that was that was like what eighteen, nineteen, twenty months ago. So now, now we're at the point where Donald, because we also had a change in administration. So now we're at the point where Donald Trump didn't federalize or federalize it. He used the federalist system where you have states enacting the different rules. Biden can't just come in and start changing it all because precedent's been set for about a year at this point that he can't just come in and start. Federal mandate that federal mandate that right. Also, it, how much of an embarrassment would it be if if someone like a Joe Biden put a federal mandate in for masks, a federal mandate in for vaccines, uh, and you know it's not even working at a state level that you're not going to even have the federal manpower to enforce it. So, so anyway, we're getting to the NFL stuff. So he can't. So if you if you're if you're if you're one of the Biden handlers. You can't go out and do a federal mandate. Plus, it looks bad, right? It's already been sold. Polling is out the wazoo that federal government should not be involved in mandating vaccines. No, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of shocked that 
Biden hasn't tried it, considering that they ramped through Obamacare and the polling was very similar to that of people don't want to be told to buy health insurance. Okay. Uh, that was the most unpopular part, and Trump got rid of it. Well, yeah, actually, yeah, Trump did get rid of it. Uh, for a second, I had, had a blame, a brain, bleh. see, I'm having a, I, I was having a brain fart about that. Now I'm having a brain fart about saying brain fart. But I was having a brain fart because I was got Supreme Court stuff uh, jumbled up in my head. But anyway, Joe Biden cannot mandate this stuff. He doesn't have manpower to enforce it. He, he can't really go state by state. Congress isn't going to do anything about it. They're too scared to do it because they know they got a midterm coming up. They're going to lose seats anyway. It's just a matter of how many uh, the Democrats are going to lose so they can have a strong majority or a, a stronger or weak minority in the last two years of Biden's term. Uh, so they can't, they're not going to do anything on it. The CDC is going to continue getting ready to announce a very mixed uh, message when it comes to going back to putting masks on if you're vaccinated, which everyone thought the entire point of you getting vaccinated was so you didn't have to do that stuff and the whole double masking thing, blah, 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 blah. I don't think, even if the CDC came out with that stuff, I don't, I honestly do not think retailers are going to go back and start, excuse me, and start telling their customers start telling their employees. I mean, some of them already, even if they do the whole optional vaccinated, unoptional thing, whatever, they'll let their employees. They'll let their employee. They'll they'll make the, their employees still wear a mask, but after you've been doing the whole optional thing, and for the most part, nobody's wearing a mask. People have ditched the mask. I, I still do. They, don't even really own a mask. So, and people have gotten used to having to show their face. Do you think Walmart? Let's take Walmart for example. They have gotten rid of the mask mandate completely, the whole optional thing, which means uh, pretty much personal choice because no one's going to ask you for a vaccine card uh, because they're putting a grandma minimum wage worker who's just doing this job purely out of the fact that she just doesn't want to be bored at home during her retirement years at the front lines. Okay, so and we all know some Walmarts are in the hood. So imagine how that conversation goes when uh, the lady approaches them and says, can you can you put a mask on? And the guy goes, no, and walks right in. Okay, so keep that in mind. So you got Walmart. They finally got rid of it. Big cost for them to do this. Do you think they're going to put it back in? Do you think Walmart will put the mask mandate back on for everybody, even vaccinated, when the CDC goes in? No. No, everyone's tired of it. People cheered when this happened. The, the vast, whether you're vaccinated or not, you cheered. People, The vaccine's out there. People have already made up their minds if they're going to get the vaccine or not. It's over. The Democrats just want to continue it because fear equals control and control equals power. And so they have to ramp up, oh, it's the unvaccinated people's problem or fault that we're doing X, Y, and Z. Or it's the unvaccinated pandemic. Or it's the Delta variant. They just got to have the latest scare to get you. And, now, and we're also going to have the whole mask in school thing. So, which we'll get to the mask in school thing here in a second. So... Back to the National Football League. So you're the Biden administration. You can't do a national mandate. You can't, okay? How do you work around? How do you work around these state mandates where they say you state, you know, like South Carolina, where I'm from, and a place like Montana or, or Arkansas, does not makes is it, it is illegal for the employer to require two things: one, a mandate of the COVID vaccine, and two, proof of vaccination cards. Okay. So you work for a national company like, uh, let's say, 
let's just say you work for a uh, Milwaukee Brewery Company. Okay, they're based out of Wisconsin. They have you know some sort of sales force in all fifty states. Uh, when they pay the sales force tax here in South Carolina, uh, they, or they got to pay the the employer version of the sale the uh, tax income on their pay stub to South Carolina. Just because the company's based in Wisconsin, the sales force still works in South Carolina. Therefore, they're being, those sales force people are protected from uh, having to ask them for proof of vaccination. So this is the problem, and I won't say problem. We put it this way. This is the genius of the founding fathers and having state rights. Um, because what some people are cursing out right now, oh my God, this is the problem with the with the state government. You know, you, you just we just need one system. That's all we need. We need the fact we just need one. Can I say yeah or nay? No, this this is the genius of it. If you didn't you don't believe in it, and you feel that strongly about one way or the other about a particular issue, move to that state. And next year, I am confident the Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade and bring push it back to the states for the states to make their decision and the left will be praising the federalist government i don't think the supreme court will go all that we'll save that for another episode but i'm just using it oh gosh my glasses hit the microphone i'm so sorry but i don't i don't think the, i don't think the supreme court will go that as far in the um overturning roe versus wade and a complete federalized ban on it uh, we'll save that for another episode, but for purposes, so they, they reverse it, it goes back to the states, the left will be praising it. Oh, isn't it great? Well, uh, well, at first they won't be praising it, they'll be pissed off, but you get the point where like, oh, if you, abortion's illegal in Alabama, but you could go to New York and get your abortion if you so please, right? It's, right it works on the left and the right issue, right, when it comes to state choices, right? Marijuana, fireworks, right? This this state, it's illegal. This state, it's legal. That's the genius of federalism and how even a state can ignore federal law. We already have you already have governors like Governor Ron DeSantis and Governor McMaster and uh, Governor Abbott of Texas already saying that if there's a federal mandate on vaccines, they will not enforce it with their the, with their uh, within their state, and they will. Uh, anti-enforcement, meaning their laws contradict the, the federal government, they're going to make sure that the state laws imply that they do not, they're going to protect their citizens, that they do not, the employers do not ask for the vaccination cards, that their employers do respect the fact that they have unvaccinated people working with them. And we know that the states will win because Ron DeSantis has already proven it, and I think we've talked about it, but just to reiterate it, uh, with the... Uh, the, the cruise lines. I almost said airlines, but I knew that was wrong. With the cruises. CDC, federal government comes out and says you have to have a vaccine card. It's illegal. There's a fine if you're a cruise line. You have to have a vaccine card, and you have to make sure all your passengers are vaccinated in order to get on a cruise. You can't have any vaccinated people. This is a little exception, blah, 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 that they, they, they carved out, right? Um, and all their employers have to be vaccinated. Well, Florida has the opposite, saying, nope, you can't do that. It's against the law. So they put the cruise industry in a tight spot. So the cruise industry basically saying, well, look, if we do one way, if, if we go with Florida's way, then the federal government is going to come after us. And if we go the federal government's 
way, then Florida's going to come after us. Either way, law enforcement is going to stop us before our cruise line leaves. And ultimately what happened is that the federal government caved. The federal government caved. Ron DeSantis took on an industry giant in his state, a big attraction, a big employer in the state. Federal government was taking a chance that Ron DeSantis would fold because of how important these cruise lines are to the state of Florida. And yet he stood in there and conservatism won because it's natural for a person to be conservative. They have to work their way really hard and be really engaged in media to get to the liberal side of things when it comes to these mandate stuff. So, And they win. Ron DeSantis wins because, number one, that nobody went to court. It was just the cruise line said we are going to tell the federal government to go pound sand uh, because we're more scared of Florida. We know Florida uh, is going to have our back if there is a lawsuit, right? The governor and just like the president, Biden, have been talking to the cruise line, and nothing came of it. Federal government, Sleepy Joe didn't enforce anything. So the president has been set that the states can do what they want with this, uh, and there's other examples. But what – and I keep I keep teasing it. I keep getting away from it. But the what the way the left is getting around a federal mandate, now instead of going after states, just like the cruise lines, they're going after industries. Okay? So Ron DeSantis wins the cruise line industry. The NFL is a little bit different. Sports industries are different, right? It's a league. It's a franchise. Uh, it doesn't really matter where the players live. They can technically say it's not a mandate, right? They can. Te- it was like, oh well, well, you know, it's, it's it's not a mandate per se, or it's just a suggestion, and uh, there'll be a penalty if there's an outbreak, and uh, we're gonna put pressure on you if there's an outbreak, and uh, and uh, you're gonna have to forfeit a game. So they're pr- trying to apply all this pressure. The left says admit that they're trying to apply all this pressure. And yet there are still giants and heroes like a De- DeAndre Hopkins, like a Rick Dennison, standing in there because that's how strongly they feel about it. And I would propose to Roger Goodell, and I want to ask him, last year when all these players got COVID, how many of them died? How many of them were hospitalized? How many of them uh, ended up having to go to the emergency room? The answer to all three of those questions is, Zero, zero, and zero. It Nothing happened. It is the common cold. It is the flu. Every year you're going to have a different variant of it. Just like the flu every year, there's a different variant of it. Next year, bark my words, this year's Delta variant, the next year's going to be some other variant. It's just the way it goes. And so... Right now, there's this social contract amongst the people here in the United States that it's stupid. It's in general, right? I know that there's going to be like the random Portland, Oregon, and the New York City, D.C. people, right? Right. But in general, from what I can tell from people I've talked to from traveling the country, and I do a lot of traveling, there's a social contract that this is stupid and dumb. But then you have this hierarchy of uh, collusion with media, politics, and and state officials that, no, 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 we have to do this as a liability, and we have to do this to show that no one's been sued for it yet. For a year and a half, nobody has been sued for the virus, being contracted in a place. And, and, you, and, and so you look at 
with the and by the way, this NFL thing, the Biden administration is going after them. Not going after them in the sense that well, we're attacking you. They're encouraging businesses to do what the NFL is doing and apply pressure. Oh, like don't don't enforce it. Oh, you can't mandate it, but you got to find ways to uh, incentivize through punishment now because we're getting because apparently giving you a Twinkie bar and a hundred bucks to go get it at the beginning wasn't good enough. So now we are getting pissed off. Now now we have to threaten you with it. That's and and we have to go knock on your door and have the needle ready and blah blah blah. So. They 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 don't get and so now you look at the school system. Let's look at the schools. And I have two theories on the schools. So this so they're getting ready to go through a mask mandate again, or potentially right. CDC pediatricians whatever they're all like, yeah. If your kid's too and older, they should wear masks in school. Uh, there's obviously no vaccination for like four, five, six year olds. Whatever all that super young age stuff. Right? States, some states have said none of our kids are, we're not letting them, any local school districts allow masks in the schools. Some of them are saying let's leave it up to the school district. Some states are saying that all schools have to have the masks. Right? And there's going to be uh, a sort of a, a revolt, in my opinion. Uh, and it's going to depend on the area. So hear me out. So some schools, uh, and you, you are, we already have examples of winning where parents have shown up and said, we are done with the masks, and the school board says, fine, no masks in school, or make an option, or whatever, and they will win. In counties in Tennessee, in counties in Kentucky, in even a county in Maine, actually, when I was reading the thing, but all over the country, school districts. But it's only in places, okay, because some schools last year some were closed the entire year. It was all virtual. Right, so I believe that those schools, the parents won't fight back as much because to them it's going to be like, all right, as long as they're in school, I really don't care. Right, that's how it was last year when they came off virtual, and parents didn't really fight the mask thing when their kids got back into school in like mid October or mid November. Right, they were just like, all right, fine, wear the mask. We're we're back in school now. That's all that matters. Now that they've had a summer, now that Families have been out traveling around the country. The vaccine question mark, you know, if you go into a store, if you're vaccinated, wear a mask thing, whatever. It's pretty much set in stone that, like, you don't have to wear a mask anymore anywhere you go. No one's going to ask you for the virus or for for a card because of, you know, no, no one. Some states it's illegal to do it in, right? Uh, some people, I know people have lost them and they're worried they're going to get double shot. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, so. So now that we're going, they're going back to school. They're like, they're fed up with it. So those parents will fight back versus the people who have. This is their first time coming back. They're not going to care as much. And if you look around the country, the, the places that went back earlier are going to be primarily red states. So my, so if you live in a red state, your kid, for the most part, unless you're in like a blue dot, like in Atlanta, in the middle of Georgia. Or like uh, Miami, all throughout Florida. Actually, I don't even know if Miami does. I don't know what the Florida laws. I should look that up. But you get my point. You're not going to wear masks, right? It's going to be back to normal school sessions as we knew it immediately. If you live in a blue state, like a Virginia, like a Washington, like an Oregon, you know, like a Maryland, you're probably going to wear masks. 
okay? If you live in a purplish state, it's probably going to depend on a lot more school district pressure, like in Ohio, like a Wisconsin, like a Nevada. Those places are going to have local school district by school district. That's just that's just what I'm seeing. Now, here's where it gets interesting and how it ties to the NFL thing I was talking about. The Biden administration is going after going with trying to collude with big businesses and try and and we already know with big tech trying to curb like getting vaccinated blah 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 and they're trying and, and apply the pressure thing I talked about okay with the schools they can they could do the same thing what if Congress I don't think and I don't think the Biden administration has the guts to do this but they could I'm just gonna I'm, so I'm playing out a theory what if Biden administration says okay. Unless you require masks, nay, double masking, and then like all your kids in high schools between 16, 17, 18 are vaccinated, you're not going to get your federal money. They tie it to money because we're talking local governments, right? And let's say at some point that's successful and they end up doing it with business. All right, Boeing. Okay, Ford. You want your money? You have to require vaccines. We're... And then they walk in, they ask, they ask Saki, oh, oh, are you going to require vaccines? Yeah, I keep touching the microphone. Are you going to require vaccines? Uh, no, the government's technically not putting a federal mandate in. We're just encouraging it in businesses and schools and masks and schools, right? And to me, that should be a violation, that that little loophole. And it never has been for the Supreme Court. I, well, I take that back. In some circumstances, it has. But that little loophole and the way that they're doing it should be ruled unconstitutional under the Due Process Clause and the First Amendment Clause. Government shall make no law. You could essentially say that the law of them requiring money, whether to a business or local municipality, of encouraging them to not give you freedom of choice, could be a restriction of due process and and the First Amendment of your freedom of speech and freedom, which is essentially freedom of speech is essentially freedom of choice. So you can make the sense that they're funding anti-First Amendment stuff, even though they're not mandating it vast, right? Some, that it, that's been by a case-per-case basis where they've ruled pro or against that. I don't know what this current Supreme Court... Nobody knows what the hell this current Supreme Court's done. Trump's thrown really three wild cards on there. But anyway, so that's where I see some of this stuff going. That's the situation we're in. And it's not the, the to me, I'm just gonna tell you guys right now, COVID, coronavirus, all this crap, mass vaccine is not going to go away until twenty twenty four when a, another Republican takes over as president of the United States. I don't know who that's gonna be. I just know a Republican, a Trump or DeSantis or somebody, is going to win in twenty twenty four. The political writing's on the wall. I do believe Donald Trump won this last election. Um, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, I mean, I don't think Trump did a good job proving that he did, but I think in the aftermath of the stuff we've seen, I, I, I believe a lot more. But anyway, I, I believe the tailwinds are for Republicans' favor in these next two election cycles, both midterms and presidential, that it's not going to end until then. Because if all you're selling is fear, which equals control, which equals power, What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is hope equals freedom, 
equals empowerment. Right? So I'm going to say it again. Democrats sell fear equals control equals power. Republicans sell hope, which equals freedom, which equals empowerment. Republicans want you to be free and empowered. Democrats want control and power. And that's ultimately what all this stuff is meant to do. Strip you of your liberties. Right? It's originally sold as a choice because, and it was all hyped up in the media that you were that this vaccine's wonderful. Even Donald Trump hyped it up. But the more they hype it up, the more skeptical people get. Uh, so let's get to let's get to the Arizona PA ballot. So Arizona bombshell. I haven't really talked much about this because. Again, I've talked. I told you before. Republicans should be more in the state legislature should be more focused on breaking up electoral votes, congressional districts, in some of these purple states. But Arizona, uh, bombshell out of them. They just completed an audit. It showed something like seventy thousand ballots were were uh, issued to mul- had multiple voters with them and was issued on wrong, like not official pieces of paper, but yet were counted. Almost all had Biden only votes, didn't even vote straight Democrat throughout the whole ticket. Um, images will be provided on the bleed through ballots is what they're called at an upcoming session. So they're finding this, legislators are finding this, Democrat Secretary of States in Arizona is finding this, PA is getting ready to do an audit. These these audits are bombshells. Do not misunderstand. I just think we're looking a little too much into it. You can you can correct the issue. You can make sure that this never happens again. But what's all this recalling of the electors? And I mean, you're you're not going to undo the election. That's just it's just not going to happen. It's all for show. Some it's not it's not all for show. Some of it's for show. The audit's real. All the everything else they do is for show. They'll they'll get an audit. They'll find the truth of what happened, which I think they'll find that there's actually cheating going on. Right? It was pretty obvious. On election night, very much to Kennedy versus Nixon, um, but uh, but this whole idea that Donald Trump's going to be back in office in August or sometime is not going to happen. Um, something else: capital gains on Biden's plan adds, depending on your income, could make it like fifty six point seven percent tax you have to pay um, in California. For those of you what that don't know what capital gains is. There's two kinds of capital gains. There's short-term and long-term capital gains. Short-term is considered under a year. Long-term is considered a year or more. I have uh, long-term capital gains and short-term capital gains that I cash out uh, yearly. Sometimes I don't. You know, It just depends on what I think is going on. But how it works is you buy a mutual fund, you buy a stock, you buy something. And uh, if you hold it for over a year and you make $10, that $10 is taxed on a separate tax rate than your ordinary income short term if it's if i sell it if i buy it in march and sell it in june that's short term because i bought and sold it within a year that has a different tax rate for short term so it just all depends on, on what it is but donald trump had essentially eliminated all short-term uh taxes up to eighty six thousand dollars and same for long-term taxes Long-term capital gains taxes at eighty-six thousand dollars. Biden wants to lower it and make the rates higher, and it's not and it's not going to it's not going to be worth for people to invest. Uh, 
It also depends on how much you pull out and all this other stuff. But it's still, it's, it's not worth people to invest. You have to also think with the inflation rate, when you invest something long-term, you want it to beat the inflation rate. If the inflation rate is 5% and I invest the stock and it only comes up 4%, let's say in a year, there's 5% inflation and my stock in a year gets the 4% increase, I just lost 1% of my money. But if the stock grows at you know, let's say 11% and inflation grows at 5%, I just gained 6% on my money um, because the inflation is uh, part of the equation. Now you add the taxes to it, that even lowers your margin even more. So when Donald Trump had the tax stuff going on, this, his tax break, it created a whirlwind of the economy because more people were able to invest. Why do you think the stock market shot up? Because more people were throwing money at it. When Donald Trump took over, the stock market was at like here. Let me look at my phone because I want to know. Uh, I was gonna guess, but I don't think I want to make sure I'm a hundred percent accurate. The Dow Industrial Jones because there's there's multiple ones. You've got the Nasdaq, you've got the S and P five hundred. So when Donald Trump took over on January, here it is. Okay, the the stock market was at nineteen thousand. 827. So let's just say 20,000 to round up. Then when he left office in 2021, it was at 30,000. Okay. So in Donald Trump's time, just to put this in perspective, the Dow, the biggest uh, in the biggest stock market in the world, gained one third, went up 33% just in the four years. It had a major spike after Donald Trump passed the total long term and short term games capital gains tax reduction in his tax plan that passed Congress. The uh the tax cuts. The tax cuts and jobs act or whatever it's called. One third. That has never been done before. And he essentially crashed it when he did his stupid closing down of the economy vaccination thing and then brought it back up to that high before he even left office. And now Joe Biden wants to get rid of another reason why the stock market's up. That's going to hurt 401ks because then stocks will go down. There's less money flowing in um, and all that stuff. So really wanted to talk about that. Let's see what else we got here. Um, speaking of stocks, did you, have you seen the barbecue industry? They are going public like nobody else's business. A lot of people have said – so this is one of the pros of COVID is that some of these – so you hear about some of these industries closing down and they're never coming back or businesses – Barbecue people have been skyrocketing. It's cheap to cook. It's good. It's better. But a lot of them are going public, and they're skyrocketing. I, re- I, I bought some. I would recommend buying some in your portfolio as well. I just thought that was a neat little nugget I've been I've been watching and keeping track of um, because they have the highest increase of going public companies than any other sector. Is literally the barbecue companies. Um, let's see, last but not least, just kind of in relation to gas prices, have you seen the, maybe we just hit three bucks, it's another thing Donald Trump had, he had record low gas prices, the Obama high was at least four bucks that I remember, I remember it being four bucks, and now, and and it would, and Donald Trump, I remember it being as low as a dollar fifty, and now we're, we're heading back to that four dollar, that four dollar high again. People aren't going to go on vacation. They're going to want to barbecue more. But uh, but that's just the way the cookie crumbles. But listen, folks, I appreciate you guys uh, listening to me again. Tell all your friends 
to subscribe to our channel, give us five stars, rate us, rate us, rate us, give us good reviews. And like I said, the best way to help us get viewers is to spread it by word of mouth. I don't really promote it a whole lot because spreading by word of mouth is the best way to make this thing organic. Um, but besides that, I hope you all have a good evening. We'll see y'all soon. Remember, voice your conscience. I'll have to talk to y'all again about the voice your conscience campaign, but we'll talk about it next time we'll put that on the list. But just again, remember, voice your conscience. Where can you find unfiltered, entertaining financial advice? All Worth's Money Matters, because it's not your typical money show. This podcast answers your calls about investing and retirement and breaks down what the headlines mean for your 401k. Money Matters is a must-listen and helps you think about your finances in a new way. Listen to All Worth's Money Matters wherever you find your podcasts. What do you know about Dr. Dunch? Based on the unbelievable true story. I can't make sense of this. Dr. Death. Dunch has two deaths that we know of. Starring Joshua Jackson with Christian Slater and Alec Baldwin. I am going to fix you. All episodes streaming now, only on Peacock. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Streaming only on Peacock. What do you know about Dr. Dunch? He was charming, intelligent. My patients mean everything to me. Based on the unbelievable true story. I can't make sense of it. Dunch has two deaths that we know of. The state of Texas has executed people for less. It's like he knew what he was supposed to do. Then he did the exact opposite. Dr. Death. Starring Joshua Jackson with Christian Slater and Alec Baldwin. I am going to fix you. All episodes streaming now. Only on Peacock. When the craving hits, Wingstop delivers. Mix things up with our boneless wings in any of our 11 mouth-watering flavors, like zesty lemon pepper or sweet and spicy Korean Q. Get it delivered at Wingstop.com. Wingstop, where flavor gets its wings. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto channel. I hope you're doing well. Hope everything is going good with you. I want to talk about the William Hinman deposition that's coming up this week on Tuesday, the 27th, and the impact that could have on Ripple and XRP, as well as the entire crypto market. Because we know this lawsuit, depending on the outcome, the SEC will use it as a way to uh, essentially regulate the entire crypto market because there's thousands of other crypto projects, right? And I also want to hit on the Bitcoin ETF that's being submitted by One River Asset Management, which, of course, as we've talked about, conflict of interest, in my opinion, Jay Clayton is an advisor to. And the man did not approve any Bitcoin ETFs while he was in at the SEC. And of course, he filed his stupid lawsuit. But uh, if Gensler is to approve this ETF, oh, my gosh. Okay, so we're going to, before I get ahead of myself, we're going to talk about it. In addition, guys, we have additional news around Amazon and their crypto plans, according to an insider. And we talked about it a couple of days ago, but there's new information I want to break down for you guys. So before we get into it, please go ahead and hit that thumbs up button, leave a comment below and hit the subscribe button. If you're new here, it helps support the channel and it doesn't cost you anything. Guys, this video is brought to you by OKCoin Crypto Exchange. 
which has low fees. Why pay high fees, guys? Buy, sell, and trade your cryptocurrencies and pay low fees. Sign up with OKCoin, link in the description. Also, please be sure to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. It is 100% free, no spam, all crypto insights and knowledge. And reminder, I will be interviewing this week Ripple's Ashish Burla. He's the general manager there. So if you have questions, definitely leave them in the comment section. Note that he may not be able to talk about the lawsuit. So just heads up on that. Also, I'll be interviewing the CEO of Luca. And if you recognize that name, that's because they are the company that's powering, <clears throat> excuse me, the S&P Dow Jones crypto indices. Huge, huge, huge partnership there. Uh, in addition, Congressman Tom Emmer. So you don't want to miss it, guys. I got great interviews lined up for you all. So this week, William Hinman, who was the director of division of corporate or corporation finance at the SEC, uh, we know he gave a speech back in 2018 saying that Ethereum is not a security. And of course, we've talked about Jay Clayton and William Hinman and their uh, respective conflict of interest. Jay Clayton more on the Bitcoin side, uh, William Hinman on the Ethereum side. So the judge, uh, Sarah Netburn, ruled that William Hinman must be deposed because we need to learn what methodology is the SEC using to uh, decide what's a security and what's not a security. You cannot use the 80-year-old Howey test. That's ridiculous, right? Uh, second, they, they've only given clarity on Bitcoin and Ethereum. What about the other cryptos in the market? That seems unfair. There's legit businesses which are waiting for clarity. And of course, Ripple was part of their target and uh, they filed a lawsuit on the way out. Jay Clayton did, very shady on his last few days. Him and his cronies are gone and they left it for the next administration to handle. Now, um, I think the SEC is in a very bad spot. And as you've seen my, with my interview with SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, if you haven't seen it, I'll put a link in the description. She is pro-crypto and, and, and it certainly uh, sees the value of regulating this crypto asset class differently than, than the SEC currently is doing. And her and Elad Rosman have put out uh, obviously different you know, thoughts and speeches and, and papers and things like that, guidance, where they are saying, you know, or they're not in line with the other commissioners, including Gary Gensler, right, who's the chairman. So uh, as you guys saw in my interview with John Deaton, attorney John Deaton, um, if you haven't seen that, I'll put a link in the description. You know, the SEC uh, is, is in a very bad space here because uh, how did Hinman operate outside of them? And, and now they're trying to say that he didn't, you know, what he said is not official SEC notice, yet his speech is on their website. So the SEC is in a mess right now, and I think Ripple's in a great spot. Um, and, and I think the SEC is getting exposed big time because now we have the internet and a lot of information is easily accessible. It's archived. If we were doing this, you know, before the, the internet, you had, I don't think Ripple would have a chance um, because things are in the open now. There's more transparency, right? You and I as XRP holders can even participate. John Deaton, attorney John Deaton, filed a motion to um, intervene, right? Because the SEC's moved, dropped the price of XRP, and a lot of exchanges started delisting it. Those are the facts, right? And the SEC caused that, not Ripple, not any other entity, but the SEC. So I want to read this article that came out a couple of days ago. It states here, XRP lawsuit. Will the SEC taking on its own commissioner's statements backfire? 
So let me give you the details. The feud between the United States SEC and San Francisco-based fintech firm Ripple Labs continues to show no signs of stalling. In their 20th July filing, the defendants urged the court to consider statements made by two of the agency's commissioners, Hester Peirce and Elad Roisman. These statements are supplemental authority in support of Ripple's opposition to the SEC's pending motion to strike Ripple's fair notice defense, the firm claimed. However, the SEC soon uh, fired back by highlighting five reasons why the defendants' latest arguments shouldn't be allowed. The individual defendants in the case, uh, Garlinghouse, Brad Garlinghouse and Chris Larson, have now filed their own response. The two categorized the SEC's reply as going on to publicly rebuke these two commissioners' considered views that there is no clarity. The development in the question uh, was first brought to the community's attention by attorney James Fillon. So obviously there's no clarity from the SEC as we talked about, right? Just Bitcoin and Ethereum have those and the rest of the market is in the dark, right? Moving and, and Ripple's defense is like, hey, where was the SEC back in even 2017? Why didn't they say anything then, right? Ripple even had a fine, I think it was from uh, FinCEN or FINRA, one of the two, um, and they paid that fine and they moved on. Where was the SEC? No fair notice, right? The point is, this is a new emerging asset class. You cannot use the Howey test against it. And the SEC has not come out and say, hey, crypto companies, uh, all crypto projects and, and, and entities, here's what you need to abide. They have not. If they've been in the dark. There's only maybe small amounts, right, that you can pull here or there, but there's no official notice. That's why even Hester Peirce has uh, put out her own uh, recommendations for a sandbox, right, a regulatory sandbox. But has the SEC adopted it? No, because I think there's just some conflicts of interest here. Uh, really, really messed up. But the good thing is uh, Hester Peirce and Elad Rosman have been uh, putting out information because once again, they're pro-crypto, they're pro-innovation and for clarity and Ripple is being able, to, their, their, their defense team, their legal team is able to use this. Uh, but the SEC has been fighting back and pushing back against their, uh, uh, the commissioner's statement. So it's, it's really getting messy. And like I said, it doesn't make the SEC look good. I think they're in a bad spot. So according to the two, despite the SEC's assertions, there is a decided lack of clarity for market participants around the applications of securities laws to digital assets and their trading. With its per response seemingly attacking the commissioner's statement, the SEC gratuitously attempting to re-argue its meritless and flawed position, it added. Uh, the defendants also stated that the SEC failed to pr prove or support its aiding and abetting charges. These claims require that the defendants knew or were reckless in not concluding that XRP was a security as long as eight years ago. However, uh, the response also countered the SEC's contending that charges against individual defendants should be decided based on the Howey test. This was also this was so in the Kick, Telegram, and NAC uh, Foundation cases. The agency claimed in its own letter. However, according to Larson and Garlinghouse, the Kick and Telegram cases did not involve any claims against individual defendants, and the NAC Foundation case did not involve claims of aiding and abetting under Section 15 of the Securities Act. 
So uh, the SEC, man, they, they're grasping for straws here. The fact that the SEC's arguments revolve around its own commissioner statements highlights the untenability of the SEC's position. It concluded, the crypto community was quick to acknowledge the said development with attorney Jeremy Hogan tweeting the following. Although the statement by commissioners Pierce and Rosman was a blessing for Ripple, it is even doubtly or doubtly so for the individual defendants for which the SEC was has to prove that the they knew or recklessly disregarded securities laws. Expect to see Ripple's reply shortly. So a couple of things, guys. Um, I know Ripple and their founders and CEOs getting, uh, uh, you know, has a, they have a target here. They're getting highlighted. But guess what? You can't tell me that ETH, uh, Vitalik Buterin, founder of Ethereum, hasn't sold any Ethereum. Trust me, he's sold Ethereum. I looked at Charlie Lee Dump on Litecoin investors uh, in January 2018 while telling them uh, that he's bullish in, uh, on Litecoin uh long term. So, of course, people who are involved in these crypto projects, they're going to have the assets and they're going to sell it, right? Uh, You and I would do the same. It's a matter of uh, context. How much are they selling? When are they selling? And uh, in addition, are they actively working uh, to build the company and as well as the tokens and, and the decentralization and the foundations, right? You have to put it in context. Um, is it like a, a rug pull or a fly-by-night thing where they sold it and then they ran and disappeared? No, right? Context is so important. So the SEC, they are in a bad position. And uh, guys, this deposition is going to be huge. Let's see what William Hinman says. Hopefully, uh, he doesn't plead the fifth because I think that will further incriminate him and the SEC. Um, I hope hopefully he comes out with some factual information and he helps, uh, you know, ripple in this case, um, because look, he's not part of the SEC anymore. And I think it would be in his best interest to do that, especially when all eyes are on this and the entire market needs clarity, not just ripple and XRP. Now, check this out. This is an article on NASDAQ, and it's from uh, just this past week. It says, Ripple, despite the legal saga, XRP is a leading name in cross-border payments. So a couple of things. I'm not going to go through this whole article because it kind of talks about what what I've been uh, explaining in this video. And that is, uh, this is just a U.S. problem for Ripple. Overseas, XRP has the clarity, and they've been getting, uh, been getting adoption and, and different uh, payment companies using it. But obviously, the largest capital market is in the United States. And uh, this whole drama, <laughs> hopefully, it, it, they come to a settlement soon, um, and we'll see what William Hinman has to say. Now, another part of this, and we've talked about it before, but One River, of course, uh, as soon as Jay Clayton left the SEC, he went straight to one uh, run river. And obviously, they're, they're, they've been investing in Bitcoin, and they filed for a Bitcoin ETF back in May of this year. And, uh, you know, somebody, I think I tweeted about it. Uh, John Deaton tweeted about it, and I did as well. Man, if Gary Gensler approves this ETF above the other institutions like Grayscales or um, Kathy Woods, ARK Invest, the SEC should be abolished. It should be destroyed because it's fully compromised at that point. I mean, yes, there's some conflict of interest right now, but we can at least hope there's some good and they're doing 
more good than bad. But if they do this, my goodness, I, I think they've fully exposed themselves and, and they've gone to a place where I don't think they could come back. They should just demolish it and uh, maybe set up a new uh, sort of regulatory framework. And, and you know, I, I don't know, but it can't continue the same way, right? So uh, let's see what happens because this would be really bad for the SEC and just even the US capital markets. It would be really bad. Now, guys, there's some news here. Um, it's interesting. It's coming from an insider. Just a couple of days ago, of course, um, I made a video talking about Amazon's crypto plans where you know they are hiring an executive with crypto and blockchain and digital asset experience. And they're exploring crypto payments. They talk about central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. And I talked about three scenarios. For example, they could add Bitcoin in their balance sheet like Tesla did, which I think there's a high probability of them doing that. Um, second, they can start accepting crypto payments. So you can pay with Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever it may be. And we're seeing a lot of merchants and technology and services are being built for this. Uh, third, they can launch their own coin, call it Prime Coin, attach it to the Amazon Prime service. And it's on the blockchain, it's distributed. They probably have to follow the SEC and whatever it is. Um, and then it's on the open market. So they, that, uh, that can really help boost the value of the company because you have the revenue generating part, right? Their marketplace. Second, you have, you have their stocks, right? And then you have a token. So they could have that triopoly if you want to call it that. And that could really help boost the value of the company. So let me give you the details here. Amazon, definitely lining up Bitcoin payments and token confirms insider. Now, this, let's, let's be real here, right? I'm going to keep it real with you guys. This is just a rumor because we don't have confirmation yet. Amazon has not approved it. That we don't know who the person is, but uh, I think there's some truth to this. If every, I don't know if everything's a tr you know, entirely accurate, but let's, let's go through it. Amazon is uh, looking to accept Bitcoin payments by the end of the year and is investigating its own token by 2022, says an insider. The internet behemoth said, tongues wagging over the weekend for after publishing a job advertisement for a cryptocurrency and blockchain lead. The vacancy uh, clearly a signal the company is laying down a pathway towards cryptocurrency transactions calls for someone who can leverage domain expertise in blockchain, distributed ledger, central bank digital currencies, and cryptocurrencies. So it uh, doesn't take a genius on the outside to deduce that Amazon might be going with recruitment, but according to an insider, the plans run much deeper than simply bringing someone on board to examine possibilities. This isn't just going through the motions to set up cryptocurrency payment solutions to some point in the future. This is a full-on, well-discussed, integral part of future mechanism of how Amazon will work. Um, it says she told City AM. So sounds like the person's a, a female. Now, a couple of things. In my video from a couple of days ago, I talked about if you look at the Amazon it's, uh, managed blockchain solutions, they highlight Ethereum as, as a solution along with Hyperledger Fabric. Also, going back in 2017, they bought the domains Amazon Bitcoin, Amazon Crypto, and so forth. You can try to go type those. Uh, they, they're, they're taken, and this was you know, this was covered in the news that they purchased these domains. So it is it is certainly not far-fetched to think that they are working on this because 
this new emerging asset class is growing. They saw what PayPal did, right? PayPal offering crypto trading and all that. Um, and I think a lot of different merchant services, you obviously have Square, you have BitGo and all these different payment processors, ATMs are being set up. Um, they're definitely going to look to accept crypto. And I think they, like I said, high possibility of putting Bitcoin in their balance sheet and launching that prime coin. It would be in their best interest, right? As far as the value of the company. So uh, the insider continues saying, it begins with Bitcoin. This is the key first stage of this crypto project. And the directive is coming from the very top Jeff Bezos himself. The insider also explained that directors of the world's fourth largest company were keen to move towards ticking off other big cryptocurrencies once it had established a fast and secure method of Bitcoin payment. Ethereum, Cardano, and Bitcoin Cash will be next in line before they bring out eight of the most popular cryptocurrencies online, she added. It won't take long because the plans are already there and they have been working on them since 2019. That I absolutely believe because uh, if you understand how companies work, right, when they make an announcement, they've already gone through what they're going to do. Nobody just wakes up in the morning and says, hey, let's do this, guys, and let's release uh, you know, some news or whatever. They've already spent years doing R&D um, and figuring out how this is going to work and, and how to monetize it and what's the revenue impact and what is the risk and what is the law and the regulation. They've already gone through this. And as I stated in my video a couple of days ago, Google is doing something uh, for sure. I think Facebook as well. Uh, so all these big tech giants and different corporates, it's, they're going to adopt crypto, guys paradigm shift is taking place with retail, corporates, institutions. Um, I, I, and we're just seeing it every week. There's news of this adoption. I mean, obviously this past week, JP Morgan, full capitulation, offering their clients crypto investment. See what's happening, guys. Um, here's the final quote. Well, actually not the final quote, um, but let me give you the, the final quotes. Uh, this entire project is pretty much ready to roll. Here's another one. When all these crypto ducks are lined up, there's another twist to push things even further into Amazon's favor, a native token. Like I said, guys, it would be in their best interest to do that. After a year of experiencing cryptocurrency as a way of making payments for goods, it is looking increasingly possible that we're headed towards tokenization. Absolutely. What we've been talking about on this channel for years Full token economy, digital economy, everything will be tokenized on the blockchain, 24-7 borderless trading. It's happening. It is happening right before our eyes, guys. And we're lucky we're here early. We're, we have bought the dips. Be patient. Have a macro level out, outlook. And there's more to come. We, we got to, you know, this, this market hasn't fully matured yet. So you have to think about the maturation and just go back and look at how Google and Facebook and Amazon and these big tech companies did in the dot-com boom and the success they had. But it didn't happen overnight or in one year or in six months. It took years. Now, I do think the crypto market is moving faster than the dot-com boom, but still you have to be patient, have a big long-term macro level view on this market. Guys, what do you think about this news? What do you think about the William Hinman deposition coming up this week? Leave your thoughts and comments, hit the thumbs up button, share this video. Thank you for watching and I'll talk to you all later.
I am Trey Sauls. During your divorce, you deserve complete attention, especially when it comes to your legal decisions that affect your children. Sauls Law Group takes care of you, and their experienced team helps families settle difficult domestic situations. Through these trials, it's important to save as much money as you can for your family. So Sauls Law Group is now offering reduced retainers for all clients, old and new. Take advantage of Sauls Law Group's unmatched preparation and passion to fight for you in the courtroom. Go to SaulsLawGroup.com today. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Jungle. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.